This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Josh Wolf, and this week is a tour de force discussion on venture capital and technology and behavioral psychology in the world of deploying risk capital in uh, the sciences. It's absolutely fascinating. If you are at all interested in the way venture capitalists think, uh, how new technologies are found and developed and exploited, and how they are adapted and eventually just become part of the everyday usage, and what the future might look like 10, 40, 100 years off, uh, then you're going to find this to be an absolutely fascinating conversation. So with no further ado, my interview with Josh Wolf of Lux Capital. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Josh Wolf. He is the co-founder and managing partner of Lux Capital, a venture capital firm that supports basic science and scientists and entrepreneurs who are pursuing counter-conventional solutions to some of the world's most vexing problems. He is a founding investor and board member with Bill Gates in Chimeta. He is a co-investor with folks such as Mark Andreessen and Peter Thiel, and he's a director at firms such as Shapeways, Stratios, Calio, Control Labs, and Variant. Josh Wolf, welcome to Bloomberg. Very great to be with you. So you have an unusual background. You're you're like a molecular biologist coming out of Cornell, and your early work is on uh, AIDS immunopathology research. How does that translate to finance and then venture capital? Well, venture capital is investing in the people who are inventing the future. And the people that are inventing the future tend to be technologists and engineers and scientists. And so you have to speak their language. But when I was growing up, I was going to be a doctor. I was going to go get an MD and then an MD, PhD. And then I met people who were actually making money. And I got way more enamored with capital markets. And I remember doing my internships on Wall Street. And then I was at the summers doing uh, uh, scientific research. And my mentor was actually trading futures and options in the science lab. And I got oh, so funny. excited. I said, you know, what are you doing? And he explained. And and uh, so I, I got way more enamored with capital markets than, than science itself. But venture capital was the perfect hybrid because you get to bet on scientists mm -hmm. who are inventing the future, but you just got to understand what they're doing. So how much of this being enamored on of finance comes from your background? You, you grew up in... In the hood, in, in Brooklyn. Coney, in Coney Island, Island, Brooklyn. Right? Yeah. Well, uh, I have a buddy who grew up in Seagate. I know that area really well. Um, did that affect the way you looked at the world of, of money and capital, or was it just your upbringing? Well, first of all, if you don't grow up with money, you want it. So that's always a virtuous thing. And I actually think that the best entrepreneurs, the kind of people that we back and we look for, if you can find the people that have the chip on their shoulder, that they came from some sort of messed up background, it's almost always predictive that they're going to be very ambitious. Hungry and ambitious. Now, you sure. want them to be ethical and ambitious because you also get a lot of hustlers and hucksters. Mm -hmm. Now, you grow up in Coney Island right by the, the seaside carnival, and you are filled with hucksters. So I would say, if anything, growing up in Coney Island made me super skeptical and cynical of human nature. I'm always fond of the Shakespearean quote that there's daggers in men's smiles. <laughs> and you grow up with this distrusting, slightly squinty-eyed, you know, what's this guy's angle? What's the agenda that he's got? The boardwalk did that to you. Yeah. You've got New York City, people talk about as diverse, but the reality is you've got Brighton Beach with Russians and you've got Coney Island that's primarily African-American Latino and you've got Korean enclaves. But you go to Coney Island on the boardwalk and it is just the absolute melting pot of New York. That's that's quite quite fascinating. So, so you end up in finance. You work your way uh, through a couple of well-known firms. 
How did you end up pivoting, to use the VC word, into venture capital? It's funny because the word pivoting is totally banned at Lux. We only pirouette. Mm-hmm. We don't pivot, we pirouette. Uh, <laughs> I, I got very lucky and uh, everything in my life I always describe as randomness and optionality. And ex post facto, I can explain everything as this perfect linear chain, a priori, you never know. One of the At guys, least you recognize that most people are similarly situated, but are somewhat oblivious to that fact. Well, but again, if you're going to be skeptical about other people, then you have to be a little bit skeptical of yourself One too. So, so intellectual honesty, I think, is a, is a good virtue, but it's hard. So I, I got lucky and I met a guy named Bill Conway. And Bill is one of the three founders. Private equity? Yep, exactly. Carlisle Group founder. David Rubenstein, famous one. He raises the money. Bill, less famous by by design and invests it. Uh-huh. And he's just an incredible human. He decided, and, and again, I don't know the circumstances of the day or the 24 hours that preceded our meeting, but he was in a good mood. And we pitched him and I said, you know, we want to build this great firm. And he said, I hope you make a billion. And he invested with us. It was just like day of my life. There's huh. not nothing that I could have pointed to in the path dependence of this internship or this job or going to Cornell or this class I took that would ever lead to that meeting. And so I, I'm, I'm humbled by what I call randomness and but optionality. That is truly, truly random, isn't it? So you and I met at a dinner not too long ago hosted by Annie Duke on an educational um, project that she's working on. But I always kind of scan the people who are going to be at these dinners. And there was something in your bio that really made me laugh and you describe your venture background as having an interest in science fiction like technology Mm -hmm. i love that descriptor but you're gonna have to explain what you mean by that okay so so everything that is around us today was invented by somebody somebody came up with the idea and that idea started quite literally as a fiction. It did not exist. It mm-hmm. was in somebody's imagination. Now, if you accept the premise that a lot of the inspiration for technology comes from other people who were inspired but didn't invent it, they were the people who literally wrote the science fiction books. They sure. wrote the graphic novels. They wrote the comic books. They made the movie. They did the special effects. And they imagined what could be. And it turns out you fast forward and you look at the Lux portfolio today, a huge number of the companies that we've invested in. The ideas behind them, the technologies, the design even, was modeled on things that happened 20, 30, 40 years ago in science fiction. Mm-hmm. And I've actually kept a archive of some of the sci-fi archives. So if we went through these quickly, you've got the uh, Motorola- probably flip one phone of, yeah, from the, Star Trek. That's exactly. Now, it, it was called the StarTac phone. Right. That was one of their first things, right? Then Which it is as the close razor. as you can get to saying the word Star Trek and not invite a uh, trademark dispute. Exactly. Okay. Now, you've got uh, today, you've got Siri, and you look at the, the image and the- the thing for Siri, it's just a silver version of Hal right. from Space Odyssey. You've got uh, Michael Douglas disclosure. He goes into this room and he 3D scans himself and he enters this virtual reality world. Mm-hmm. This was around the same time as like Lawnmower Man, if you remember that. Sure. Okay. Not a, not a fan favorite, but one of mine. And that sort of presaged the virtual reality landscape. Mm-hmm. You've got pod racing from Star Wars. Today, that's drone racing league. You've got robotic surgery when Luke Skywalker's hand is severed by right. Vader. That begot both Intuitive Surgical and then Oris, which was one of our companies that we sold to Johnson Johnson uh, earlier this year for $6 billion plus. Not too bad. Not too bad. And and all of these things were born in somebody's imagination. Mm-hmm. And if you think about really what venture capital is, it is believing before other people understand. And what are you believing? You're believing in somebody's vision. Now, the difference is you have to make sure that they're not full of it so right. that you don't get a Theranos and you have to have very- verif- Literally just wrote down the word Theranos. And, and, and that is that it, That was right? my next question. Now, now, here's the intellectually honest thing. You do not know at the moment of inception or conception of a company whether the person is malicious or delusional, whether they are intellectually honest or not. And so you put up a little money. It's like an ante in a poker game. 
You're trying to figure out, is this person for real? And you try to define what are the technological milestones that will tell me that this is for real and not BS. And the biggest thing, if you walk into my firm and you sit in our Monday partners meeting, if you asked any of the partners, what is Josh going to ask about the technology or what is he thinking the second that somebody is pitching it? I am thinking, whether I say it publicly or I'm thinking it privately, is this a fraud? Mm -hmm. So you raised Theranos. It's such an interesting question because my read of that entire situation from the get-go is that it was both delusional and a fraud simultaneously. She had zero medical background. She had, and, and it's amazing how all the healthcare and medical device VCs passed and everybody else who came in didn't know better. But it appeared that she believed she could legitimately do this, but with no basis in fact. So at what point does delusion become fraud? Well, when the technology doesn't work. I had a friend who was at a very large decabillion investment fund that was doing crossover investments. Their public market portfolio, they have $40 billion. They were making private investments. They were going to visit Theranos. And they said, what's the number one question that you would ask if you were us doing diligence? And I said, does it work? Right. And you'd be surprised how many people just want to believe the narrative of the story, going sure. back to science fiction, and not verifying if it's science fact. Now, you had all these other telltale signs with her. Uh, the octogenarian boards, which- For sure. Know, all signaling value, people that had you know great military or geopolitical George influence. George Schultz and Kissinger. Henry Kissinger, and just totally inappropriate for a medical technology but, company. But to your point, there was nobody there that really had any sophisticated biotech right. or pharma experience. Now, the truth is, Liquid biopsy, the ability to detect from a small drop of blood analytes that are uh, indicative of cancer or something else, will eventually, from someone, see the light of day. But you think about the scar that it has put on the industry and the sector and how hard it is for a legitimate entrepreneur that's developing legitimate technology today, they've raised the slope significantly. So it's not just that she was a fraud and her partners were frauds. They've literally set medical technology back because now everyone's going to be skeptical, even of legitimate Breakthroughs. Yeah, now realistically, is it set back one year, two years, or three years, or has it raised the cost of capital for the How firms? many people will die over the course of that setback? So you can argue that there's blood on our hands, <laughs> yeah, Well, yeah, okay. I'm not it, a fan, it, in it, case you can't tell. I, I'm with you, and, and look, I, it's easy for all of us to say back then, and I believe, by the way, because I know that you are a fellow skeptic, that was a fraud. It's harder today, both socially, to come out and say, I think that another company is a specific fraud. Now, there's an entire realm of quantum computing today Mm -hmm. that I think is going to be wrought with frauds. It, it, it has all of the criteria for a fraud. People don't understand it. Mm -hmm. They have FOMO, fear of missing out. They think that it's going to be something really big. They don't want to feel stupid because they don't understand it. And so people are parting with money. And I think that you're going to see at least one and maybe as many as five public frauds related to quantum computing. The, the tragedy of the commons finds its way even to venture capital. Tell us a little bit about your team at Lux. Who, who are your partners and what what does everybody do? Well, let's start with my founder, uh, my co-founder, who's uh, Peter Aber. Peter is my dispositional opposite, which I think if you are going to have a firm is a critical thing. Now, mm -hmm. it's interesting because in hedge funds, you typically have one PM and they make all the decisions. In private equity, you tend to have teams. Uh, so Peter and I are the co-founders. And the reason that it's important is he is the optimist. I am the pessimist. I'm sitting before you and I am wearing all dark. I wear all black. Uh-huh. And it's just my disposition. I expect the worst. It helps. And yet the shoes are not pessimistic, but for the skulls all over them. Correct. <laughs> Pete, you will catch him in Nantucket reds, in pastel colors. Right. He is much more like my wife, who happens to be an activist hedge fund manager. She's more perma-smile. 
Me, right. as they say, you know, I've got RBF, you know, resting B uh, face. Uh-huh. So, so <laughs> uh, I expect the worst. He expects the best. And if you had an entire firm that was like me, we would be a bunch of cynical short sellers right. just trying to spot the frauds and doubting everybody. Right. If you had a firm entirely like him, we would be lemming growth investors just paying any price and going off the cliff. Right. The balance that we've had as friends for 25 years and as partners for 20 has made culturally the firm what it is. Now, from us flows everybody else. And so you've got 10 other investment professionals and everybody is intellectually and ethnically and gender diverse. Now, what is it, what does that mean for me? We've got people that are Kashmiri, Pakistani, Iranian, Brazilian, Australian. You've got a bunch of white New York Jews. But the, the intellectual mix of people is so different. You've got electrical engineer PhDs. You've got people that have stem cell PhDs, people in material science PhDs, people that have no technical background and are excellent at capital raising and marketing. And when we descend upon a company, the entire, and it's funny because I used this analogy the other day and people had no idea what Voltron was. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I'm a young guy, but geez, it, it dated me. But it's like Voltron coming together. You get all the robots right. come together into this Megatron. And uh, it, it's just uh, you know a, a diverse group of people that all think differently. I always say that if two people think the same, one of them is unnecessary. Right. And uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. So you're concerned that your cultural references are out of date and you're like what, almost 40? 41. Okay, wait until you're in your 50s and you'll drop a Monty Python or a Caddyshack reference and the whole table of millennials look at you like What's you Caddyshack? have two heads. No, there you go. Yeah. Perfect. Um, <laughs> so, so you focus a lot on um, basic science to some degrees. T- tell us the sort of companies uh, Lux invests in. So it, it really is something that's in the cutting edge of an area that we think that other people haven't found. Now, the reason we do that is we want really high scientific and technical complexity, not because we want to tackle things that are really hard. It's because we don't want competition. It is way easier in venture capital to go find the next company that is developing an app for the smartphone or some social media software or something that is relatively easy. But the problem with funding easy things is you get hundreds of competitors. Talk about random outcomes. Of those hundred, who really is going to know which is the next Snapchat or Instagram or whatever? It's practically random. Now, I know that you're a a student of skill versus luck. Mm -hmm. And the great question always, I think, in this domain is can you fail on purpose? Something that Michael Mobison has- That's right. And and in, in- In picking amongst a field of 500 competitors in software, you know, you've got, let's say, equal probability, one in 500 chance. If you can find something where there's only three or four or five competitors, you can look a lot smarter because now maybe you have a 20% chance, assuming all things equal, of picking the winner. Can you can you invest in all five or two out of the five or anything? You're typically conflicted, but sometimes, Mm -hmm. depending on the stage of things, you might invest in one. And then later on, something else comes along and you might invest in it, but because you know that it should really be part of the first thing that you invest in. Mm -hmm. And by being able to influence that outcome and say, you know what, don't split the baby. Don't try to split and and recruit uh, competing talent. Don't try to go to customers and and, um, uh, confuse them. Be part of one enterprise and it's better own something smaller of something much bigger than to try to, you know, compete head to head. So sometimes we will influence those outcomes. But by and large, the stuff that we're investing is at the cutting edge of science and technology. It's hard. There's barriers to entry. There's intellectual property that imposes a negative right on people so that you have a moat. Again, all things that, that, and I am psychotic about competitive advantage, give the company that you're investing in a better chance than just pure luck. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, When I think about batting averages for the typical VC fund, usually, and I'm going back to the, you know, the John Doors of the world. Um, the 80s and 90s VCs, they tend to spread a lot of money around 
most of which did not generate a positive uh, yield. And then there's a handful of not just winners, but giant outsized winners, 100x, you know, think about eBay and Apple and, and Amazon, go down the list. Given this area and, and the more basic science that you're focusing on, is it a similar distribution or how do the numbers shake out? Are you looking for one home run to subsidize the next 50 or is it the distribution different? So let, let's look at the macro on venture. You've got um, two extremes, one of which we say is spray and pray. Exactly what, spray you're, and pray. exactly what you're describing. Just bet a lot of lottery tickets. You have intellectual honesty or total naivete. You don't know what's going to work. And it rhymes, so you know it's true. Exactly. <laughs> the, the other extreme, stick with rhyming, wait and pay. Okay, so you wait until a winner emerges. You pay a very high price for the higher chance of being correct. But obviously, the higher the price you pay, the lower your expected return. Mm -hmm. So in one case, you're saying, well, let's bet in 50 or 100 or 200 companies and make small investments buying lottery tickets. In the other, you say, we're going to load up into the ones that are winners, but we're going to do it at such a high price that maybe we're only going to get a double. Now, for a successful venture fund, you're looking for 3x or 4x cash on cash right. over the 10-year period that you've got locked up money. Now, I always say the great advantage that we have as venture capitalists, let's say over peers in other alternatives like hedge funds, hedge funds might have quarterly, monthly, maybe annual liquidity redemptions. Mm -hmm. And that's a hard thing because it creates an institutional imperative where the manager is focused on the short term. We get to focus on five, six, seven years because our investor's capital is patiently locked up for a decade. Okay. If everything goes well, you might get three to four X cash on cash. Now, some funds, you might have a 10 X fund and some you might have a two, but on average, that's what you're gaming for. There's two ways to cut it. First is you assume that one or two of your companies return the entire fund, all the capital that you've raised one time over. Our newest fund, $500 million, we've got a pair of them. It's, it's uh, We recently closed a billion dollars. But the, the $500 million, you might have one company where you own 10% of it and it sells for $5 billion. You've got $500 million back in gross proceeds. It's returned the fund one time over. Mm -hmm. Your next five companies in aggregate proceeds return the fund another time over. And in our case, where you build a portfolio of about 25 companies, then the ensuing 15 or 20 companies will turn it another time. And you end up with that 3x cash on cash. The other way to think about it, and again, simple math, a third of your companies are total zeros. You lose right. everything. A third, you make back, give or take a dollar. And the third, you make 10x and you end up with a 3x cash on cash. The problem is you don't know which companies when you invest are going to be. <laughs> if you did, you can only invest in the 3x. Yeah, you, you, you say, I'm only going to put the money in the 10x. Correct. Now, of course, what we do, wherever your confidence and your conviction is high, you upsize and you, you know portfolio allocation. You put more money in the things that you think are going to be great. You try to put less money in. in but, but so much of this is reputational. Right. And so you mentioned John Doerr before and some of the great venture capitalists of the past. And it was their reputation in backing a winner that begot them the next deal. It's very much like when you sit in a movie theater and they say, from the director that brought you, you know, right. or from the producers of, and it's that signal. It's the same signal of why elite, you know, universities attract elite performers and you get this path positive feedback right, effect. Right. But so much of our business, if you are intellectually honest, is luck. There, there can be no doubt about that. Um, Although, I, if, if you go with this, can you fail on purpose? I can guarantee you that I can fail on purpose. I can pick the absolute worst entrepreneurs that cannot raise money. I can absolutely pick fraudulent companies, and I can absolutely pick teams that can never deliver, and I could fail on purpose. Well, but that just says that there is a skill component that doesn't by itself eliminate the luck component. 100%. So the threshold for having a half-decent venture fund is, hey, if you can eliminate a lot of that fraud— 
that's how you end up with a three or four X as opposed to a one and a half or a two X. Well, and really the best is, is can you develop the reputation and can you actually be able to help companies so that you get the best entrepreneurs? Because the truth is, what we do in the end of the day is security selection and a little bit of competitive intelligence gathering and some smart capital allocation. But the most important thing that we can do is attract the best founders because they are the people who do everything. At the end of the day, limited partners give us money and they allocate to us. And we, in turn, give it to the entrepreneur. And the entrepreneur, in turn, decides who they're going to hire and who they're going to fire and what technologies they're going to prioritize and how they're going to sell. And the single best trait of an entrepreneur is somebody that can tell a story, somebody that has that narrative power going back to science fiction and just being able to back those individuals. They are the people that recruit talent. They are the people that raise money. They are the people that garner attention and win deals. And that is what makes the venture capital business. Quite, quite fascinating. Earlier, we were talking about um, science fiction and how that led to your interest in venture capital, but you've developed a philosophy that I think is somewhat atypical from some of those other VCs uh, and business people I've mentioned. One of the one of the things in your bio um, stood out to me, E.O. Wilson, you said he might be the person that had the single greatest impact on humanity. Explain that. Well, totally biased view, but but he had the biggest impact on me. Intellectually, this was modern Renaissance thinking. The book Consilience, which I probably read in 98, 99, 2000, thereabout, so over 20 years ago, was this idea in science that turned me on in turn to Charlie Munger. These two people are, are, are compatriots. Charlie's view of Renaissance thinking and worldly mental models and E.O. Wilson's view of the unity of the hard sciences and the soft sciences, between psychology and physics, between economics and geology, and finding patterns lets you identify some universal truths. Mm -hmm. And so if you can continue to find those first principle universal truths, I think it sets you on a good path for making good decisions. Quite, quite interesting. I assume you've worked your way through Paul Charlie's almanac oh, already. I, right? I, I've given so many copies of that away. I've, I've created more doorstops and, and uh, <laughs> coffee table book gifts than he, you can He's one of my whales. If you if you can get around to introducing us, I, I would love to you see know, I, that. You know, I have a, a funny story. Uh, my wife and I went years ago to the Berkshire Annual Meeting, and we were at the, uh, I forget if it was the Days Inn or the Marriott, whatever the hotel was. And before I actually had invested with Bill Gates, there was a dinner, and it was Bill Gates, it was Buffett, and it was Munger. I picked my wife up from the airport because I had arrived earlier and we go out to grab her bag and the car was broken into. Your car? Our car was broken into and everything mm -hmm. was stolen. The laptops and everything was gone in, in Omaha. We go to the front desk and while we're going to the front desk, who is settling the bill for their private dinner restaurant? Charlie Munger. And here I am, my wife is really upset. You know, all our stuff was just stolen from the car and there's Charlie Munger at the front. And she looks at me and she's like, go ahead. You know, it's just, <laughs> she knew that Charlie was going to trump, you know, the theft. Right. So, um, and you had a conversation. I did. And it's a highlight that you have great memories of. Well, you know, he's not a very loquacious person, no. you know, nothing to add. But uh, but I, I think that uh, his, his rigor in being, you know, I, I remember there was a story that somebody asked him, what is the single thing that you would attribute your success to? And he said, being rational. Fair enough, right? And, and that's it. If you can try to be as rational as possible, which means identifying all the points where you are irrational um, and mindful. You know, we, we were at dinner together with Annie Duke and Danny Kahneman. Right. And and Kahneman's partner's wife, Amos Tversky's wife, Barbara. Correct. Who also just wrote an amazing book. And um, it, it's really interesting because Danny has identified all of the mental biases, the cognitive biases that we have. And it doesn't matter because even being aware of them, you still, he will still fall 
victim to them. It's, it's called the bias bias. It, that even knowing your own awareness of, of these cognitive issues is not sufficient to defeat them. Looking at an illusion, even knowing it is an illusion, it still works on you. It, it's how you're wired. Correct. We, you know, we were very well designed to adapt to the savanna, but these more complex capital risking ventures where risk is out there, but the dangle of reward, our brains just go on the fritz when that's presented to us. At least our instinctual brains. Getting past that, you have some shot, but it's not easy. But it's interesting because you know we we respond to the bustle in the hedgerow, right? The little the little sound that's there, and is that a tiger? You know, or is it just the wind? In my world, I have to respond to that with heightened sensitivity. Oh, is that a little signal over there? Is that entrepreneur onto something big? And so we're constantly overreacting in part because it is so zero sum. I do not have the opportunity to invest in the public markets where I can say, you know what, I really like that and it's up 10% or it's down 10%. There is a zero sum nature where I am racing to beat everybody else to the big scientific technological breakthrough and own it before everybody else can. I, I like that answer and, and kudos on the uh, Zeppelin reference. I appreciate that. Um, there's another quote of yours I like. You, you refer to things as minnows and megas. Explain what that means. This is a phenomenon right now, the minnows and the megas in venture capital. Um, historically, you had lots of firms that existed and maybe they were 200, 400, $500 million firms. What you've had in the past few years is a phenomenon that has created a barbell of capital allocation to very small funds and many of them, what I call the minnows. These are people who have raised 10 or 20 or 50 or $100 million. They are a single or in some cases a duo GP, general partner. And, and this is a spray and pray approach to VC? In some cases they are, but more importantly, they're very, it's like the institutionalization of angel investing. Okay, that's now, fair. Why is this happening? In part because there is a junior person at a major fund who found the hot deal that made the fund a lot of money. But the problem is that person is not part of the succession of the partnership. They don't have the economics. They're not going to get paid. So the limited partners recognize, you know what, Jane Smith or Joe Smith, they were really the deal maker here. Let's put them in business because they are the future of venture capital. And the LPs are thinking, how do I get a big allocation in the next Kleiner Perkins or Sequoia? And how do I get that early? So that has created what is intelligent to do on a small basis with a handful of these people. But again, a priori, you don't know which ones are going to be really successful. Right, right hundreds and hundreds of minnows. Now, the way that we look at that as a firm is these people are our friends. They're a source of deal flow. We can be a source of capital to them. Some of them are going to turn into great franchises, nearly impossible to predict which ones. At the other extreme, you have the megas. The megas are the people that are raising billions of dollars. Now, the 800-pound gorilla or Godzilla, depending on your view, mm -hmm. is SoftBank. Sure. SoftBank has the come The vision in. fund is just, uh, it's a $100 billion gorilla. Well, it, it is a complex beast, and I would call it Godzilla, and it has completely changed the undulating landscape. Why? Because, again, in public markets, you have relative efficiency at times. Of course, you know, you have massive inefficiencies at times, but there is no market more inefficient than venture capital, where in the private markets, a single price setter can come and just decide what the price of something is. They create the market clearing price. There is no short selling, there's no counter offers, there's very little liquidity. So SoftBank has come and created all of these unicorns and decacorns. And what's crazy is the money that they're putting to work, in some cases, they are pricing up their own investments. Now, put on the tinfoil hat for a moment. I have a more slightly nefarious view that a reason that SoftBank is doing this, understanding the motive, is that they are doing this to be able to create paper assets and increases in paper valuations that can serve as collateral against indebtedness that is north of $140, $150 billion. Mm -hmm. So 
by being able to invest in WeWork at $10 billion and then pricing it up to 20, you just showed that you had 100% gain in your billion dollar or $2 billion investment. And if you look at their earnings over the past one or two or three quarters, a significant portion of the profits that are reported is from these paper gains illiquid. And then when one of these companies actually exits and you have liquidity like an Uber or a Gardent, they take those proceeds instead of distributing to the investors, they say, you know what, we're gonna borrow against this, we're gonna issue debt and sell it to retail. So I think the entire complex, which is really run by a bunch of Deutsche Bank ex-credit structured credit guys. And you know Deutsche Bank is the most straight up bank there is. Of course, I mean, there's no risk there that you, know, you have total collapse. <laughs> and uh, so, so I think that this is, for venture capital, systemic risk, and one of the poster children of illiquidity. I think that the narrative about singularity and the future, all of that is great for society because it funds all kinds of experiments. But for the SoftBank and SoftBank investors, I, I would be very, very nervous. So SoftBank is a Ponzi scheme, quote unquote, says Josh Wolf. I'm going to put that down and put those <laughs> words in your mouth. Um, the Minnow and Mega model, by the way, very much reminds me of one of the smartest things that one of the smartest banks does, which is Goldman Sachs. Are you familiar? You know, when, when Goldman Sachs has a hot trader or they have a, a manager who's killing it, rather than have that person slip out and launch their own thing, they'll tap and say, hey, have you ever thought of starting a hedge fund? We'll, we'll help fund you. We'll give you your first billion dollars. We'll help you raise capital. Oh, and by the way, we're your prime broker and we're going to have a piece of the GP. But go out and um, um, a thousand minnows have spawned and that's how you end up with where are we, 12,000 hedge funds these days, most of which barely earn, earn their keep, um, including fees. Beyond fees, it's it's not necessarily a uh, moneymaker. But that description of VC funding minnows is what Goldman has been doing for, I don't know, 20 years? It's actually very interesting because on the hedge fund side, you know, between um, Citadel and Millennium and Baliasny and SEC, You've seen that phenomenon, right? Where they say, "Okay, we're going to do risk management at the top. We're going to have a lot of people. We'll blow them out if they lose, you know, ten percent or whatever." Right. The SAC was notorious for that. In in venture capital, first of all, the time frame to know if somebody has made so money long. is so long. Right. But um, but you haven't had that kind of institutional complex because the 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 time that it takes to find out if somebody is right or wrong, the pay schemes, all this, it's just it's it's very complicated. But you do have this bifurcation in many many investors that are making small bets. And that is good for the angel investor, the person that's starting up. It is easier than ever if you want to start a business to find capital. And that has an important footnote. Which is? The beneficiary of that over the past few years has been WeWork. Because everybody- I see, I thought you were going to say the public. Why, why we? Because the public gets subsidized well, the, the, Uber rides. The, the public is always the beneficiary in the end, even during bubbles, right? I mean, right. of course, pensioners and retirees lose money, but the reality is- we continue progress, right? And in the, the, Jim Sirowicki had a great quote many years ago in The New Yorker, which said, in greed and avarice lies the hope of progress. Sure. And it's true because that's what happens, right? Everybody funds something, they overdo it in the short term, they underestimate it in the long term, but in that greed and avarice, lots of stuff gets laid down. The, the book that best sums up that Sirowicki quote is um, Pop, Why Bubbles Are Great for the Economy yes, by Dan Gross. Yes. So you look at railroads and televisions and cars and computers and fiber optics, Every, with the exception of financial bubbles, uh, like the great financial crisis just leaves behind debt. But every other bubble, look, so you probably remember Global Crossing and Metromedia Fiber and all the fiber optic companies that were laying um, unlit cable at something like $2,000 a mile. And it and they all go bankrupt, and it gets bought. The next generation 
for pennies a mile. And that's what makes YouTube and Facebook and Netflix and all these other bandwidth intensive um, applications viable because some losing investment basically made the broadband available for free. So, so you hit you hit on, I think, two really important things and 100% right, right? Late 90s, you had a narrative promulgated by George Gilder, who happens to be a friend. Oh, really? Yeah, but but George- Oh, God. G Gilder used to literally say, I worked with a guy who used to get the Gilder Telecosm newsletter, yeah. and I would read it and I would always come away with, I what is this? I don't do price nonsense. Price is what matters right. in the public markets. How can you not do price? George was directionally right about technology. Okay, and there are certain directional that's a, arrows. That's a tough call to make. Hey, the default position of human technological advancement is up. I could save you $2,000 a year in a newsletter. There you right? go. So now, one line. But, but you had that Gilder effect, right, where he would come out, and because everybody else was looking at it, it was a big, bold letter, whatever the public company, the thing would be up 50 no, 80%. I remember Nortel, he got behind it, exploded. And go down the list of... All of the JDS Uniface and all the, all these guys. Okay, so so but you're right, Gary Winnick and Global Crossing. Right now, hype got high, cost of capital got low. Like you said, hundreds of miles of dark fiber optic got laid and lit, and the winner from all of that was the third world who got connected to the internet for free. Right, the losers were the growth investors, the public investors. The winners were the distressed equity guys who came and picked up all the oh assets my. for cents on the dollar. Right. Now, you go back almost a decade in venture capital, the same thing was happening with solar and alternative energy. Mm -hmm. Everybody was funding solar. And you didn't have to be a genius to predict this, you just had to know a little bit of history going back 10 or 15 years, mm -hmm. which was optical networking was going to be, if history doesn't repeat it rhymes, it was going to be the same thing as solar. And so in solar, we said, sit out the ride, don't invest, you're gonna have massive hype, it's gonna lower the cost of capital, people are gonna do uneconomic things, and the winner will be the third world that gets connected. Now, my anticipation of the time was that the private equity guys would come in and scoop up these assets for cents on the dollars, and I was wrong. Really? Because the people that scooped up the assets for cents on the dollar were the Chinese. Huh. And they now dominate the solar uh, industry. Quite quite fascinating. Let, let's talk about some of the technologies that are out there and how they're doing. You know, when 3D printing first came out, what is it, almost 15 years ago? Is yep. that right? Is 15, it that 20 ago? years, sure. So the promise was we'd all have these five, $200 3D printers I need a part. You can print just about anything. We'd be printing heart valves. We'd be printing all this stuff. And did we get our, our hopes up too high? Is that still somewhere off in the future? Or or has 3D printing really been an overhyped bust? Yes, yes, and yes. So Really? Yes. It, I wasn't expecting it. That. It has been an overhyped bust, but this is predictive. If you know your history of technology, which you do, you look at Carlotta Perez and the, the diffusion of technologies okay. through, through history. You go through a um, installation phase where everybody gets the thing and people are tinkering. For the past 20 years, and those are typically near a generational long thing. Maybe it's three quarters of a generation, but between 20 and 25 years. So for the past 20 years, you've had the installation phase where people are getting lots of different 3D printers. You have desktop ones that do cost a few thousand dollars, but they really do, don't do very much. They print mm -hmm. plastics and it's good for schools and universities and tinkers and this kind of stuff. But then you've had the domain of prototyping, and so that's also been another, you know, early. Boom. That's a big cost saving. The the two thousand dollar three the bigger units that you could design a part and say, let's see what it looks like in three D. Yes, but it's still modest. It isn't the the boom that we've all been right. looking for in three D printing. Now, I do think that over the past three or four years, we've been entering this deployment phase. So you go from installation, which is twenty years, to now deployment. We invested in a company called Desktop Metal, and when we invested, it was about three and a half years ago. The industry for spare parts and um, uh, end-use parts 
was maybe $5 billion. Today, it's nine. Mm -hmm. So rapid growth in the industry, it's probably going to 90 over the next decade. So big, 10x over 10 years. 10x That's over big. 10 years. Now, why? If you look at most of the economics of manufacturing, it is spent on tooling. But the vast majority of the value are in end-use parts and the spare parts. If you can change the economics of how you make this stuff, historically, you ship them and you ship it three ways, sea, air, or land. But there's a fourth way to ship a part. Digital. Digital. And so so eventually, my mechanic is going to tell me my turbocharger needs a new fan and he'll be able to print it and slap it in instead of waiting six weeks for it to show up from Germany. And in fact, Desktop Metal is working with, I think, seven different automotive companies for exactly this. These small bespoke parts, a water impeller, right. um, something in, is a part of a motor, where it does not make sense to spend the fixed cost to tool and die a part where you're not going to make 10,000 or 100,000 or a million of them. You just need one or two of these parts. So I think that that is going to be a big trend. And particularly if you look at a company like Desktop Metal, this is a Boston-based company. It has grown very significantly. You got BMW and GE and and um, uh, Saudi Aramco and uh, a whole slew of strategics that are investors alongside us. But the other piece of this is uh, wait a second. You said Saudi Aramco. I'm sorry to interrupt. So what you that you just made me think of is you have some a crew out at a offshore oil rig that needs and a something breaks and to get something flown out to them could take a week. And they lose a week of production or they have a, a machine, they they manufacture the part and they're down for four hours and that's it. Correct. Now, maybe it's not four hours, maybe it's a day and a half, but but yes, because the, the, the installation phase where you had a bunch of these printers, they were doing plastic. There's no way that an industrial right. company was going to be able to use that. Now, when you have these sophisticated laser sintering metal 3D printers, it's real. It's real pieces. It's real technology for real applications. So that's one. And, and you're seeing this in jet, in, in, um, jet uh, engines, in automotive. You are seeing it. If you get a knee implant, if you get a, a hearing aid, what? Uh, it is a good chance over 70% that that is 3D printed product. Real, now, yeah. this is not a biological product. This is still some form of plastics and or. No, it's, it's it could be titanium for your knee. What I mean by bio, it's not a it's not an organic product. Correct. It's a metal or a plastic. Correct. Correct. So um, how far off is the, hey, I need a new aortic heart valve and I don't want one from a cow. Almost Give all me. of this stuff is still structural. When you start thinking about the other component, which is function, you're mm. really far off. There's right. a, a guy, uh, I think Wake Forest, Tony Atala, who's doing 3D printing of organs. Now, that's those, that's the the sort of vision I'm thinking. Now, I think the best- I need a kidney. Print me one. They can't do kidney, but the best that they've done is a bladder because it's basically just structural, right? It's whole liquid, right. whole fluid. Uh, so In other words, it doesn't have the mechanical functions. Even if you're working with stem cells- you can't uh, maybe in a lab, but today, like being honest as an investor, you we are far, far away from being able to introduce structure into that. All right. So, so I'll then, give you a hundred years. Get that, get that hundred done. years, I think, is possible. Okay. I, I would say high probability in a, in a in hundred years. Uh, I think it's more likely rather than printing it, we're probably going to harvest them. We're going to grow them instead of printing. But no, no, we're going to grow them inside of animals. Now, there's mm -hmm. going to be ethics about that. But today, if you wanted, there to- there are no ethics it, about growing kidneys in front inside of animals. <laughs> if you wanted to take I'm it from sorry, a pig, we eat animals. Uh, yes, but but there, that's there's a that's there's a nicer on that life. Too. For for a pig or a, or a, who are very similar biologically to humans, so or a, or a chimp, it's a nicer life for them than they becoming bacon. Yes, but uh, it's a there's a ethical debate. All right, uh, yeah, okay, thanks. Take, take let's take care of that ethical debate. You're going to save millions and millions of lives and inconvenience a few chimps. How is that debate going to go much further than that? I I think that if you can if you can 
appeal to the default morality of are you reducing suffering, then you have an entire camp of people that increasingly, and this is this is observable, it's not speculative, uh-huh. that more and more people are embracing animal rights and saying, you know what, it's sentient, it's suffering. Look, there's nothing more I love. Actually, this is not fully true. Nothing more I love than bacon. The only <laughs> thing I love more than bacon is peanut butter and bacon, which I know sounds disgusting, that but it's delicious. That does sound disgusting. But it is amazing, okay? Salty I have a and friend sweet. who's a vegan who eats bacon, and I'm like, you know this comes from a pig, right? And the answer is, but it's so delicious. It is delicious. So, so, and by the way, pigs are actually much smarter than dogs or horses. And that hasn't slowed down the human onslaught of pork. Yeah, but it doesn't make it right. So, so. Okay, but you can, you can make the, uh, we're digressing, but the ethical argument that it's wrong, we can intellectually agree with it. But in the marketplace, that is a giant losing argument, is my point. Today, and you are seeing both uh, as evidenced, if you look back in the arc of history, uh-huh. I think that what we're seeing with Beyond Meat, you will see, you know, this uh, Tilray-like phenomenon. I think this is a company that ends up, you know, That's dropping weed. value 80 or right. 90%. Yeah. But, um, but after it ran up, after it ran up 5X But, or but the market is saying something, right? Now, maybe mm-hmm. you've got algos and maybe you've got momentum investors and maybe you've got people, but there's demand and interest in this. And it's, it's if you believe that markets tell you something, right? Markets are there to serve you, not to tell you, but, they, but if- if you believe that there's something in the ascendancy of Beyond Meat, a signal, right. in the same way that uh, the ascendancy of Global Crossing and these other things, going back to that prior, the ascendancy of these things tells you that there's something there. And I do think that we're there are a see- rounding error in the world of food. Let's you and I make a bet right now. When is the first year in our lifetime when the annual pork consumption, short of a worldwide you know, disease phenomena like bovine- Won't, won't happen in our All lifetime. Right. Well, How about on a per capita you. basis? What about per capita even? I, it won't happen in our okay, lifetime. Okay, so now that we've taken care of the ethical issue, which is an interesting <laughs> debate with no real market thing, um, which brings us back to- I don't even know how we got 3D to this printing to 3D printing. So if it's not <laughs> if it's not the organs, yes, um, it's not the organs, but it is the parts inside the body. It is the parts inside the aircraft. It is the parts inside the the ship or the and and it's really interesting because the you change the economics of manufacturing. It has mm-hmm. geopolitical implications. If you are just shipping a CAD file instead of having spare parts and inventory sitting in a port, of which there are trillions of dollars sitting right, in ports. Right. There's interesting implications. Same thing. You're saving on storage. You're saving on transportation. It's a greener approach for sure. Even whatever energy consumed by the printer, it's better than manufacturing and storing and shipping and whatever. It sounds like it's a, a no-brainer if it if it can successfully penetrate I, that market. I, I think the no-brainer is going to come when it's economics. So we have another right. another company here in New York, and uh, half the operations are here in New York, half are in Eindhoven in, uh, in the Netherlands. They have made 12 million unique parts over a million users and customers, 130 countries. They'll print 2 million parts this year, unique parts, individual unique things. If you are a small business and you have a room that's not dissimilar from the room that we're sitting in, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, a few hundred square feet or whatever it is, uh, that's filled with inventory. And you think about the cash conversion cycle. Sure. And how much is locked up in that? If you can free that by instead of having the inventories and just uploading that as a CAD file and printing it and shipping it on demand, it will unlock capital. Anytime you unlock capital, I think you create value. Sure, for sure. So so let's talk about some of the other things, some of the other areas that you focus on. And I, I have not mentioned um, the company that you, uh, one of your early investments that was in nuclear waste remediation. Um, let's talk about that, and then I'll have to ask you about thorium. Tell us about 
what you guys did with nuclear waste remediation at a time when everybody else was looking at green alternative energy. Yeah, so so if you listen to, and they were very smart guys and very successful older venture capitalists, but John Doerr and Vinod Kosler, they were the legends, and they were writing the op-eds, and they were crying on TED stages, and they were really promoting the idea with Al Gore and others that the most important thing you could fund were solar, wind, biofuels, ethanol, battery, electric cars, okay? The problem was everybody agreed with that. And the number one thing that is predictive of returns is not whether there's a hockey stick growth curve that Gartner tells you this is going to be a big industry, but how much money is going into the industry. Mm -hmm. More money that floods in, the higher the price of the assets, it'll be great for consumers, lower returns. So we said, where is nobody looking? And that's the thing that I love to do. I love to understand where is the consensus and where is the variant perception? What's the thing that nobody else is looking at? Nobody was talking about nuclear. You watched Al Gore's movie back then, Inconvenient Truth, doesn't even mention the word nuclear because it was taboo. It was politically taboo. Mm -hmm. So we looked at nuclear. We spent a year and a half looking at every part of the fuel cycle. We started with the uranium miners. Maybe there's something there. Turns out they're all hucksters and fraudsters in (laughs) New Mexico and Nevada. So the the Coney Island in me said, you know what? Stay away. You you and I have had the the Mark Twain quote, but my favorite discussion, but the all-time greatest Mark Twain quote is, what is a mine? It's a hole in the ground with a liar standing there. Exactly. Time. Exactly. So so that was the same thing, right? And and by the way, uranium mining, if 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 it took off, it, uranium itself was such a small portion of the cost of operating a nuclear mm-hmm. plant. It was relatively inconsequential, whereas the marginal cost of nat gas and oil was primarily driven by the underlying material, the commodity. Mm-hmm. So we, we said no to uranium miners. Then you looked at modular reactors. This is a good idea. Smaller reactors that could be Moved easily and 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 built you know uh, incrementally. So instead of building a billion dollar gigawatt you know a, 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 a power plant for to serve a million people, you would build an array of say 30, 30 megawatt plants. Right. And each one maybe cost you a hundred million dollars, and you build it over time. Now the problem with that is is really for the domain of very long uh, uh, tenure investors, maybe sovereigns, billionaires, people that could wait 20, 25 years. Right. Not for the technology to develop, but because the regulatory. Sure. And, okay. So we said no to that. But then you look around and you say, geez, the biggest unsolved problem with nuclear is not the political, it's it's what do you do with the waste? Right, it's disposal, absolutely. And, and so you've got you know this whole push for Yucca Mountain, which would be a geological repository. We have spent tens of billions of dollars on Yucca Mountain. Do you know how much waste has gone in? Zero. Zero. So we looked at that and said, okay, that's sort of interesting. Now, what about the, the way that you store nuclear waste on site? And it turns out that there are basically two companies, one that makes a vertical cask, like a almost like a casket to put the rods in, right. one that makes a horizontal one. So you can make a vertical one or you can make a horizontal one, but that was basically- That's some innovation right that's there. That's the innovation. <laughs> now, what happens is these rods- Inside the the reactor, you know, they uh, they go through a nuclear chain reaction. Right. They heat the water. The water turns the turbines. That's how you have nuclear power. Then when you're cooling them, they sit in a pool of water for five years. And then they're pulled out and they put into these little caskets. Five years just to cool down. Yep. No no additional reaction. That's just a very low-level background. Water is a natural neutron observer. Mm-hmm. and but But there's all this low-level waste that is sitting there. So everything from uh, worker dose radiation to uh, parts. And, and, and there's a big market for that. But the bigger market, and this was the thing that really got us, if you actually sit, and I promise you this is not scintillating reading, but it was insightful because nobody was looking at it. If you read the DOE budget, $25 billion a year, $6 billion of it is spent on nuclear waste cleanup. Have you read The Fifth Risk by Michael Lewis? Yes. The whole, that last third of the book is all about what the people think the Department of Energy is about energy. It's not. It's about nuclear nuclear weapon cleanup and some nuclear energy cleanup. Now, that, that book was written well after this. So this is 2009, 2010. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hanford, Savannah River, Idaho National Labs. Savannah River is giant. Huge. People people are unaware of how much There is an entire material. city in Hanford, Washington, uh-huh. in the state of Washington, 
you fly in there. There's an airport dedicated to this. There's right. one bar. It's called the Three-Eyed Fish Bar, uh, <laughs> like out of The Simpsons. <laughs> right. And, and the entire thing is a community and a complex dedicated to nuclear waste cleanup. Now, the people that are making all the money, and when I tell you they make money, it's billions of dollars a year, basically shoveling waste from one side to the other, and this will be going on for decades. It's URS, it's CH2M Hill, it's floor, it's the big engineering primes. So we looked at this and said, not only do you have this in the US, but you have this in the UK with a site called Sellafield, you have uh -huh. this in France with La Hague. Is there an opportunity for a high-tech solution that could win contracts by doing this faster and cheaper? We looked around. We couldn't find anything. Nobody else is in that space. Nobody was in the space. And I got to tell you, going around for a year to nuclear uh -huh. waste conferences, I was certainly the only person under 50 years old. Uh, and I was certainly the only venture capitalist there. So we go and we find the best technologists that we can. And we find the best people that were under the age of 60 because they, they weren't that entrepreneurial in this space. And uh, to be honest, we found people that were like 58 or 59. And we end up locking up the best technologies, which were a combination of material science and chemistry and physics. Materials that could grab the worst radioactive elements like cesium and strontium, right. magnesium, uranium, plutonium. And then we had a second technology called vitrification, which in layman's terms is glass making. Take right. the stuff, lock it up into a glass you're matrix. You're it in, in silicon or some other- uh, well, Silica is glass, right. and, and, but you're heating it at about 1700 degrees. It turns into this molten form. It can't leak or leach into the environment. So it's still radioactive. Still it's radioactive. just not cranking out. You haven't transmutated it. You know That, that doesn't really exist, but- but, uh, but well, it can't if it did, get into you could the turn it into gold, and we know that doesn't <laughs> exactly. And then and then oh, start a mining company and take it public. So <laughs> with a liar, exactly. The hole in the so so we we ended up starting a company. We named it Curion after Madame Curie, and in part because with I'd a read, K with a K to be cute, and and uh, in part because I'd read the article in the about the Department of Energy, and it said that there's billions and billions of Curies, which is the measure of radiation, right. and that was the inspiration. So we started the company. And with very little money, and uh, I had uh, two of our LPs who were prominent hedge fund managers and us, and we put a total of $3 million into it. And I put a million and a half in from our fund at the time, and we own 35% of the business. We stake these guys, they go off to work, and the first year they did about a million in revenue. Second year, Black Swan. You had a negative event, which was the seismic event that led to the earthquake, that led to the tsunami, that led to the Fukushima disaster. Right. And lo and behold, the only company picked in the US for this cleanup was this little company, Kiran. So we went from a million dollars in revenue to 40, then 80, then 120, wow. 160 million uh, in revenue. Are they still working there now? It's they, still beyond They still their... are. And, and they actually sold to Veolia, which was a French giant. We sold for uh, $400 million. We owned a third of the business. We made in excess of 40 times our, our early money, returned the entirety of that fund. And it was gratifying because we like to sound, say as, 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 as sanctimonious as it sounds, that we like to invest in matter that matters. Uh -huh. And it was meaningful because you actually did something to reduce all the radiation from this disaster sure. site. And we got to make our investors a lot of money. We have been speaking with Josh Wolf. He is the co-founder and managing partner of Lux Capital. If you enjoy this conversation, we'll be sure and come back for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things technology and venture related. You can find that at iTunes, Overcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Bloomberg, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com. Sign up for my daily reading list at ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Josh, thank you so much for doing this. I've been looking forward to this for a while um, since you and I sat at what was a fascinating dinner, um, and I hope something comes out of it. Uh, really interesting idea that any Duke is working on. You mentioned my friend Michael Mobison was also there. It was really a murderer's rogue 
of uh, people there, quite quite a gallery of, of intellect. I don't know what's going to come of it, but I, I, I thought it was fascinating. And I thought what you discussed was really interesting. I have no idea what it was, but it led me to say, <laughs> I should have him come. He's an interesting guy to sit and chat with. So what do you recall what your big idea was in that that meeting? You know, it, I, I actually think at least one of the ideas was as they were thinking about how do you get a more broad distribution about decision-making for young people. Right, how it, to train people to make better decisions and, and there was, while you know, they're in the junior high school level. And, and, and the first principles approach that you would want to take to this is, well, how do you reach those people? And uh, the old school thinking is let's put it into the curriculum of the schools. And right. every time that you've tried that, you know, it's typically failed. And so, you know, go where these people are. So if, if you've got Social young media. kids, yeah, or that, you know, if you got young kids, it's on Roblox, you know, have gamify this so that young people can be on Roblox and, you know, playing decision-making games and looking at things, maybe even starting to learn to think in probabilities or uh, slightly uh, older generation, it's, it's podcast or it's, uh, it's uh, web oh, episodes. This is, or, this is now old school media. You know, I used to think this was so cutting edge. You're no, telling me this is now old guard. Look, people that are listening here know Voltron, they know Caddyshack, right. you know, they, the younger, younger people, maybe not. That's uh, I've had a number of MBA professors tell me they assign um, various uh, episodes of this as homework. So there's some reach well, why not? To the, right? It's it's, the, it's content. You have sure. you have amazing access to amazing people. Why not? It's it's quite it's quite insane. Talk about dumb luck. I'll, that we'll have a longer conversation about that at another time. We were just talking about uh, nuclear waste remediation, and I have to ask you about the concept of thorium powered. Uh, reactors. I I don't know how many years ago this was. There's a huge article in Wired magazine. I don't mm-hmm. know if you recall Wired um, about all the advantages of thorium and how productive it is and how low grade the waste is, and yet nothing's ever seemed to happen with that. I'll give you a probability in a time frame. There's a fifty percent chance that we see something in the next fifty years, and a ten percent chance that you see something in the next ten years. And if you do, over seventy percent chance it comes from China. The uh, the Galvins, really? the Motorola wow. family, has been uh, backers of uh, an effort on the East Coast. I think it was called Thorium Power. We looked at a bunch of efforts. The problem is, it is very long, very expensive, regulatory fraud. Uh, it's just it's it's just going to take too too long. Really? The, the virtues of thorium are great. You know, lo- it's lo- cheap, lo- ch- cheaper, lower probability, cheaper of- than uranium or or any of the other. And and uh, lower the the biggest virtue of it is you have less probability of uh, proliferation because one of the outputs of traditional nuclear is plutonium. Right. No plutonium or thor- thorium, which is really uh, interesting. And um, let's talk about uh, well, there's a few tech subjects we didn't get to. I have to ask you about. Chronobiology. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about, and my understanding of this is, hey, we could take the RNA sequence and clip off the ends, which tells people, tells other cells when they're supposed to die. And theoretically, we have an infinite lifespan. There, there's there's many different dimensions of this idea of chronobiology. And the biggest one is that different cells in your body are different ages. Mm-hmm. And there are markers on those cells that can tell how old something is. So the Purkinje cells in your brain are probably 25 years old. Oh, mine are much older than that. <laughs> the uh, They feel it anyway. The gut and skin cells you have are maybe days at most weeks old. Uh-huh. So different parts of your body are basically regenerating and growing and dying at different times. You're not like, there's not one barrier, right? You're made up of lots of different things at different ages. And so being able to do a body clock to understand those different things is important. Mm-hmm. Second, it turns out, of course, we have circadian rhythms, right? You get tired right. at night, you have different levels of, of uh, hormones at different times of the day, different people might be night owls, people might be, but there's something to that physiologically sure. throughout the day. The third 
is that there's now evidence and scientific papers are coming out showing that if you give chemo at certain times of the day to certain types of people, that it might be more effective than others. Really? So there's something in the body about when you're being reactivated. Look, you, you I'm sure have a time when you feel that you are your most alert. When caffeine works on you, whereas you might after lunch go into your food coma at three o'clock or something, and caffeine just doesn't work as well as it does, say at nine thirty, when you know your hormones and and uh, metabolites are, are spiking at a different rate. So the idea of chronobiology is within the cells, between the cells, and even between people. Is there something about the dimension of time that plays relevance for medicine in the body? Huh. That that's quite fascinating. Um, what else? Uh, autonomous driving, GPU gaming to. Your concept of of uh, intelligent machine goes from GPU, from gaming to power, artificial intelligence to machine learning. What's next? Is this what's going to drive fully autonomous driving, autonomous uh, military vehicles? Where does this go? And explain what GPU. Is. So, so GPUs are graphic processing units. This is the ability to do uh, large-scale, multi-dimensional processing of polygons. So, back mm -hmm. in the day, if you had uh, a Nintendo 64, it was this big revolution. If you were playing James Bond back in the day, it was like, wow, you know, like three-dimensional, you know, uh, simulation. Tank Commander, I remember that. Game yeah, and that was two-dimensional. But, but you can see. Well, this it was all three-dimensional polygons, and that's how they created the sense of depth and the illusion of uh, of space. Exactly. But, but over time, you can see this clear progression, almost like a Moore's law. Of, of visualization, but we went from CPUs, the central mm -hmm. processing units, which were primarily dominated by Intel, to GPUs, which were primarily dominated by NVIDIA. Now, the narrative in public markets around NVIDIA was, this is tightly coupled to PlayStations, uh, PS4, and uh, Xboxes. Right. But suddenly, something happened a few years ago, about seven years ago, where they invented a language called CUDA, C-U-D-A, and it put it in the hands of academics and researchers who suddenly said, wait a second, instead of using CPUs for high throughput computing, we can instead use GPUs to do this processing. And they started doing the processing for neural networks to be able to do artificial intelligence and machine learning. And so you saw the shift where GPUs were primarily coupled to the consoles and gaming right. to suddenly being the soul of the new machine inside of things like autonomous vehicles and drones and simulations. This is an area when you say like what's next in terms of uh, autonomous vehicles, increasingly the technology stack is um, is maturing. You have LIDAR, you have solid state LIDAR, but the really valuable thing is the simulation. And this is a fascinating phenomenon because it is affecting many different industries, the gap between reality and that which is simulated. So the ability to render reality in physics engines is leading to everything from you can play a simulator on something like Drone Racing League and you can actually fly a drone and it's indistinguishable. You can actually simulate something inside the human body using a CT scan of a body and have a GPS guided experience using a surgical robot. You can actually have a simulation of a street and then have an autonomous vehicle that is learning on the simulation as opposed to actually learning driving in the road. And it's increasingly indistinguishable. So typically that takes place on a screen. I know you're a sci-fi guy. When do we get... Um the Star Trek uh, hologram room, the holodeck. Well, you've got, uh, we have a company actually called Looking Glass that's doing volumetric display, but uh, we're not- Meaning three-dimensional without a screen. Three-dimensional, you have a screen, but you have no VR or AR glasses. Right. So it's a, it's an optical trick, uh, like holograms are, but um, the future there is that you'll be looking at something akin to, uh, um, you know, a pitch on a soccer field and it's in three-dimensional like a fish tank and you're watching the game, you know, right there. Huh. So one last Star Trek uh, thing I have to ask you about. You've talked about transporter technology, right? And we're not talking about spooky um, connections at a distance or anything on a, on a 
subatomic level, you're literally talking about the ability to send matter from here to there. Explain that. Well, I, I don't think you can do that. I mean, that is science fiction. What you can do is I can take a picture. I'm looking at a coffee cup on our desk here. Mm-hmm. I can 3D capture a simulacrum of that cup. Mm-hmm. I can, now Good it's work. a CAD design. Right. I can, I've turned the atoms into a representation in bits and I can send those bits as a CAD file digitally to a 3D printer and I can print a version of that. But I am not actually transporting the individual atoms. Which I've is, copied it. Which is why I will never step foot on a transporter because people don't realize the transporter kills you and creates an exact duplicate <laughs> exactly. of you wherever it goes. And I, I, I was always... I was always surprised at Star Trek how that never came up, other than the doc not wanting to do it. But every time you step on a transporter, if, if you wanted to make a device to execute people. <laughs> this would be it. Right? You yeah, basically no, it, tape people and disassemble them on a molecule and atom by atom basis. Now, the fact that you have the ability to reassemble them elsewhere, that doesn't mean they're not dead. This is just an exact duplicate, but... I just thought that was uh, an interesting but, thing. But so clear, you're talking te- about teleporters are not an investable thing. It's you're just you're talking about idea. basically the uh, a variation of 3D p- printing using uh, at a distance using using um, a full 3D um, scanner scanning. Yeah, device. no, and then 3D scanning the resolution has increased exponentially over the past few years, and so that's going to continue. And I think that you can capture very discrete elements. Uh, this is another area where I actually am very excited about biology, which is the imaging and microscopy tools that are coming out to be able to capture things in real time at a near atomic scale inside of cells. But the idea of teleportation is, you know, today's science fiction, 3D scanners coupled with 3D printers will closely approximate it, but it's still a trick. And at a molecular level, uh, you know, let's we might as well talk a little bit about CRISPR and gene editing. Um, are you describing building these things from scratch or were you talking about growing these things designing redesigning the genes and growing them or doing a scan and reproducing them well there no no so in biology there are, there are people that have gene libraries they're trying to assemble nucleotides there are people who are editing them using the technique of crispr crispr mm-hmm. is really i don't want to say an overhyped technique but it is a very hyped technique that was a fundamental breakthrough. And the fundamental breakthrough was effectively Control-C, Control-V in computing. It was mm-hmm. copy and paste. Mm-hmm. You can actually use this technique to be able to transpose codons or nucleotides from one part to another. And so that allows you to literally edit, like on Microsoft Word, with precision. But we are still so far away from being able to deliver. There's been no CRISPR in a human. There's been no technique where you say, you know, geez, Barry's got a, a genetic defect here and let's, you know, edit that out. It's just, it's it, it's it's so far away from practical reality that it's still a lot of hype. But when you say so far away, a thousand years? No, I mean, you know- A hundred years, 10 years? Impossible to predict because you could have a breakthrough, you know, and so intellectual- But realistically, 50 years from now, you will be able to edit, not you, you, but- You can today edit embryos. You can, you know, and China is doing this. China, and this is something I always say that China lacks something that we have. And because they lack it, they will be ascendant. And the thing that they lack is the ethics and regulatory apparatus that slows things down here in the US. Well, the way to, let me rephrase what you just said. China prioritizes the the group over the individual. In America, our priorities are the individual over the group. And that's the difference between individual rights or a society that's lasted 5,000 years. Totally. And and the, the, the result of that, I think, is that many of the advances in biotech will actually in the near future occur in China, uh-huh. particularly around CNS disorders, Parkinson's CNS and Alzheimer's, meaning, uh, uh, central neural, nervous system. Okay. 
And the reason I say that is, first of all, with the growing demographic population we have that are going to get older here in the U.S. and suffer from things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and neurodegenerative diseases. An inevitability statistically. That is a huge market. We have shifted much of our primate research outside the U.S. because of ethics reasons. China does not have any such right. ethics reasons. I, they do work on prisoners that even Americans would be aghast at. I, that, that may be so, but uh, they are definitively doing work on primates. Uh, and I think what's going to end up happening is we will import from China the drugs, much in the way that the U.S. exports Hollywood to the rest of the world. Uh -huh. I think China will be exporting drugs, and hopefully, you know, it's a well-tested, close to FDA-approved apparatus, <laughs> so that we're not in in, in uh, importing crazy stuff. But, but so, I, what's the difference between doing the research? This is where the ethical slash economic discussion we had earlier comes to fore. Is there a difference between doing the research? or purchasing the end result of that research, to me, it's the same. Effectively, the research was done. You may not like it, but you're eating the pork or you're buying this product. How are you not as responsible for the research as if it was done here? Isn't it hypocritical to pretend otherwise? And this goes to whether we're talking about food or what have you. Well, look, as a U.S. citizen, your your tax money goes to university research and you might fund some research whether you agree with that or not. I mean, that's the allocation. Or the War Department or this. Or the, I mean, you, Wh Which you, itself is another ethical issue right. we should touch on because military technology, I think, is going to be an absolute boon in venture capital. I think it's one of the most exciting and important areas mm -hmm. in the next you know, five years, um, in part because the vast number of big tech companies from Google on down are eschewing wanting to do work with military. They have such pressure from the HR and IR departments uh -huh. that people are saying, I don't want to work on this stuff. It is creating a giant gaping void. hole, yeah. a void, where there's a tremendous opportunity for some of the smartest technologists, some of the smartest scientists and engineers to work on these wicked thorny problems in defense. And your, your pal Peter Thiel is we are co We, we are co-invested in a company called Anderil. I think it is going to be one of the greatest companies in defense. If you look at the new Let me get entrance, my checkbook out. Yeah. If you look at the new entrance in uh, defense, you know, you've got Lockheed, you've got Raytheon, you've got BAE, you've got General Dynamics. There hasn't been anybody over the past 25 they, years. They've all conglomeratized over the past 30 years. There used to be 50 companies in that space. There's seven. Now. And in some cases, you have people that are doing amazing things, but it takes a very long time and they're working on huge multi-billion projects like the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. Mm -hmm. In other cases, you have many, many small beltway bandits who are just getting these cost plus contracts because they know somebody that knows somebody. Right. But true innovation, the thing that I think gave American military might, which in turn gave our economy the ability to project power across the globe and control two oceans and all of the geographic plus military advantage we have, it has to be supported by continuous technological advantage. And 100%. that is something that over the past 20 years, I think has slipped away. I think very few engineers wanna really work on these problems. And I think the smartest ones that do are not only gonna make a fortune, but they're gonna do a tremendous patriotic duty. Mm, quite, quite interesting. There's a fascinating story about how a bunch of engineers tried to get the Navy to take radar in the new book, um, Loon Shots. It's just astonishing that this was an old technology by the time it was put to work in World War II. Nobody could get the, the War Department, which as it was called back then, to recognize the military value of this. I gotta think there's a million things like it, that. It's always, I mean, even the, um, Jim Woolsey, who's former CIA, sure. head, who's a venture partner at our, at our firm for many oh, years. Oh, really? He uh, you know, tells a story of, uh, of, of Amber, uh, which was uh, he traded a bunch of alpaca back, uh, blankets to, um, to some people uh, over in Eastern Europe to be able to get a runway and then actually fly a drone. He was looking at um, uh, Milosevic. And, uh, and, and that early drone was Predator. 
by this uh-huh. uh, Israeli entrepreneur, Abe Karam. At the time, Woolsey went to the DOD and said, I need a drone. I want to be able to, you know, have an unmanned pilot that could, uh, a, a piloted vehicle that could give me eyes on the ground. And they said it'll cost $500 million and take six years. Right. And he was able to go to this entrepreneur and in $5 million in six months, they were able to create this. Wow. Astonishing. And and whatever happened with the company behind the Predator drone? Did Boeing acquire uh, General Atomics. General Atomics. Okay. That's a, that's amazing. General Dynamics or General At- Atomics. Really? Yeah. That's a great that's a great name, General Atomics. Yeah. <laughs> um so I only have you for a finite amount of time. Let's jump to our speed round, our favorite questions. These are what we ask all of our guests. Um First car you ever own, year making model. 1994 Ford Explorer. It was a uh, Hunter Green, and uh, I think I had it for a year before it spun out on the highway, and uh, I never drove it again. By the way, this is my uh, test question because eventually someone's going to say, "What's a what's a car? I don't know what you're talking exactly. about." Exactly. Uh, tell us the most important thing people don't know about Josh Wolf. I mean, you know, there's so much that I don't even know about Josh Wolf, right? So being intellectually honest, but. Uh, personal side of me i love heavy metal and hardcore i grew up going to you know mosh pit brooklyn place called lemores and life of agony and i like skateboarding and i, I like people that just have this sort of gritty rebel side to them uh-huh. so, uh heavy Get, metal hip-hop when you say heavy metal like my hip-hop following ends at paul's boutique with the beastie boys but yeah it's too commercial like you know black moon on the hip-hop side um d- um, like two commercial is three eleven or or yeah no and and on the heavy metal side it would have been um, Deftones, Life of Agony, Biohazard. Oh, you're you're hardcore heavy life, metal. Yeah. Like to me, heavy metal is Black Sabbath and AC. yeah, no, that's pop. like when I was coming up. Bla- you say that today, but when Black Sabbath came out, people were like, "What is this devil music?" Exactly, it was hilarious. Exactly. Um, tell us about some of your early mentors. You obviously have a few who've helped shape your career. Well, it's interesting. There, there used to be this placard outside of our old office. We were on 41st Park in Madison. Now we're down on Broadway, 20th, 21st. And, and it said that, um, you know, reading great books is like having conversations with, you know, the best minds of history. And so I, so you many mean, of my- uh, Embedded in the ground. Exactly. In the, so my office is 40th off Bryant Park. We're yeah, right, right there. Six. So that library walk. So Inspiring. That- Right, they're they're fabulous. Love they're them. all over, and I don't know who did that, but it's genius. I love it, and and, and you know, you're you're looking down, you're looking at your feeder, you're looking at your phone or whatever, and you notice these things. But but that one always hit me because so many of my mentors, in a sense, are people that I never met that are dead. Right, they're just alive in the pulp and the ideas. But but the one human mentor that I really I, I feel owe my career and and the intellectual honesty is Bill Conway, the founder of Carlisle, who is just. His ethics, his integrity. It doesn't matter what the deal docs say. It doesn't matter what the contract says. You just do the right thing. Um, the kinds of questions he asks, the way that he speaks without saying things, you mm-hmm. know, it's, um, what do you mean by speaks without saying things? Um, he has a diplomatic way of saying things. And sometimes the message is in what he doesn't say. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I find that there's a handful of people that can communicate that way where you sort of intuit what they mean without them actually being explicit. Quite, quite interesting. Um, talk about investors, be it VC or otherwise, who influenced your approach to the world of risking capital well you know i think i read every bio and every article that i could about the early venture investors um so you know tom perkins and and general dorio and all the the early venture capitalists um and and so many of these lessons are basically irrelevant because you have this path dependence there's an idiosyncratic moment i remember there was a guy from a firm he was a legendary investor back in the day ben rosen from seven rosen he was early investor in compact which was once a significant technology investment and ben said you just need one 
Right. You just need one because you get one hit and then that hit begets, you know, a reputation, a reputation begets more hits and so on. So on the venture capital side, it was, you know, a handful of individuals. The person who I have the most respect for in venture capital, hands down, is Bill Gurley. I think he's a true investor. I think he came from the sell side on Wall Street and he understood how to be an analyst first. He understands businesses. He understands human nature. I think he happens to be a towering giant because he's very tall and I'm very short. But um, <laughs> we're both on the board of the Santa Fe Institute and, and I- Oh, I re- with uh, Michael Mobison. Exactly. Michael chairs it. And um, and, and so uh, so I'm very fond of Bill. Um, and, uh, you know, but there's Bill Janeway is another guy who I think- uh, Really interesting guy. Super smart guy. And the way that he always thought about risk and technology was an influence. Um, there's an older guy, Chris Brody, who is at Warburg Pincus, who I spent a lot of time with. I probably learned how to be a good board member from watching uh, uh, Chris, you know, hold people accountable. So a, a lot of, you know, in, individual lessons, but but from an investing philosophy, I mean, hands down, it's like the value investors because they were just rational and they have they wouldn't touch venture capital. You know, Charlie Munger and, and Buffett and everything that I could read, you know, that they've ever written or said uh, and all the, um, you know, acolytes that followed from them, I think are just, it, it gives you a, a grounding sense of a true business and markets and human psychology and and uh, so I think even as a venture capitalist, you know, if you if you haven't studied those greats, you're you're you get a massive deficit. Let's talk about books. We've mentioned a few over the course of our conversation. What are some of your favorite books? Be they fiction, nonfiction, technology. I, I, I'm a voracious reader, so so fiction, nonfiction. So uh, Consiliency, O. Wilson was a great. Um, How the Mind Works, Stephen Pinker. Um, I loved uh, The Operator uh, about David Geffen, and I like reading biology uh, – uh, sorry, uh, uh, biographies. Um, why Zebras Don't Get Oscar. Uh, oh, sure. Out of Stanford. Uh, What's his name? Uh, Sapol- Sapolsky, right? Uh, Sapolsky, Robert Sapolsky. He's a, he's a primatologist, right? But mm-hmm. it, at the end of the day, we're, we're – He's two... really a behaviorist if you think about it. But but we, we are two primates sitting here talking, right? right. And, and um, uh, related to that, there's a, um, a great book that uh, Robin Hansen wrote in the past one or two years called The Elephant in the Brain. Sure. About signaling. And if you understand and why people, the motives behind why people do things. I think it's really interesting. Um, let's see, The uh, on the fiction side, it's interesting. My wife really got me into fiction, I don't know, going back 15 years or something like that, but The, the Magus. Um, and it was sort of the psychological profile. Who wrote that? that? Oh, I can't remember uh, the author's name, but it was- Spell it. M-A-G-U-S. It's uh, This guy's got this like Greek island and he, he has this- teacher professor who takes this little sojourn there and it's just like all these mind games that he plays with them. John Fowles. Yeah. Oh, it was it was dark and cool and psychologically. That turned me on to a British writer, Rachel Cusk, who's writing like every sentence. You know, I mentioned before, I love the line that there's daggers in men's smiles from Shakespeare. Uh-huh. And so just her use of language and the psychologically astute prose that she has is great. Um, she has a trilogy that seems to be uh, outline is the first, um, and then transit was the second and, uh, kudos, I think is the third, mm-hmm. um, fiction, uh, recently overstory by Richard powers, it's just brilliant p- prose. And I, I really got turned on to fiction because I think that you can, you can tell more in a paragraph by, by an amazing fiction author who understands human psychology than you can reading an entire textbook. You know, so in psychology. I'm, I'm surprised there isn't a science fiction title on the list because you talk so much previously about sci-fi. Yeah, Neil Stevenson. I mean by you know by far the the depth, the rigor, the foresight, you know, the diamond age for me probably around the time that we were starting Lux was just such an inspiration. Um Diamond Age. Yeah. And I don't, uh, I don't know that one. And uh, uh he didn't he do Seven Moons? Yeah, uh, Seven Eves, yeah. Seven Eves, yeah. right? And um yeah, and then and then TV writers like um, you know David Milch and Deadwood and and the current writers on Westworld, um, 
Uh, I just I, I think it's absolutely brilliant scintillating soliloquies that they put forth and uh, philosophically erudite, really interesting. We, we are in a golden age of television. I think so. Uh, tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Well, you know, there's business failures and there's personal failures. The business failures, you lose some money, right? Or you made a bad decision. So if you're again, well, losing money is is you know you're not going to hit home run every time you're at bat. May not be a failure. It's within the expected distribution and returns. We look What's at it as, a, as process versus outcome, right? So, right? so there are times where we actually make money, but we considered it a failure because we had the wrong process. So what I mean by that is maybe our thesis was we were going to make a certain amount of money or it was going to work for this reason. And we were we ended up making money, but we were totally wrong. We consider that a process failure. Mm -hmm. But being, you know, I, I don't want to sound like, um, I don't know, too uh, cliched here, but like the the biggest failures for me are the things that have the permanence of regret. So choices I made or relationships that I underinvested in or people that I didn't spend enough time with who passed, like those to me are the biggest failures. And um, if there was like a, if there was a younger Josh that I can go back to, it would be, you know, some of the relationships that I wish I could have fixed or, or people, like I said, who passed that I could have spent more time with. Those to me are the biggest failures because you can never fix them. You, you lose money in an investment, you know, big deal. You'll make money in another one. Right. But, you know, you lose a person or a friendship or a relationship. I think those are the biggest failures. So afterwards, I'll give you the secret to time travel and tell you how you could solve those issues um and i'm not kidding what do you do for fun what do you do when you're not reading or or at work my my kids are just you know it's an amazing adventure i've got three of them uh you know now they're nine six and three two girls and a boy and um you know you, you get to just see the world through their eyes and and make all kinds of new mistakes over um so i love my kids i love my family i was an only child all i ever wanted was a big nuclear family <laughs> and my parents split when i was young so this is sort of the chance i've had to, to make it right um love reading skateboarding basketball you're still skateboarding yeah now? i still skate in fact there's a sunday morning crew of dads um you know that are sort of between 40 and 45 and we go out to in tribeca to the skate park and right. you got to keep the orthopedics busy you know, exactly. Uh, exactly they, they need to earn a living also um Tell us what you're most optimistic about today and what are you most pessimistic about? You know, I think this is a constant. I'm always optimistic about scientists and, uh, you know, the incremental discoveries and the big breakthroughs that they're going to make because I think it's an inevitability. I always talk about this sort of directional arrow of progress. And I think there's an absolute inevitability just driven by human greed, pursuit of status, that we are going to continue to discover incredible things that by definition nobody ever anticipated. So I'm optimistic about science itself as a process. Um, I am generally pessimistic about human nature. I mean, the the best and unfortunately the worst things that I think happen in the world are not because of um, you know uh, inanimate things. It's because of animated things. It's about people, uh, two-legged mammals who who are you know filled with um, too much greed or too much fear or too much hate or too much uh, ignorance. And and so um, generally pessimistic about human nature and and uh, you know that classic daggers and men smiles. Um, and our final two and most favored questions, what sort of advice would you give to a millennial or a recent college graduate who came to you and said, hey, I'm interested in a career either as a uh, technology entrepreneur or a venture capital? Yes. I think the single most important thing for anybody is to, um, to build your brand, be differentiated, be indispensable. Um, stay close to the money, you know, find where the capital is flowing and stay close to it. That was one of the great early advices that I got from somebody. Um, and, and be voracious in your reading. I think you have to be exposed to so many things so that you can sort of develop your passion and then from your passion, develop an expertise and be able to stand out. So, you know, all those things are, are interlinked. Um, and and the, the best advice that I probably give, again, with regret to my older self is I think you need to find the balance between having the chip on your shoulder and the ambition and then, um, you know, being mindful that every relationship you have and every person that, it, you know, at some point in the future, they're going to be a, a call option and you don't want that to expire. So, um, 
you know, be good to people. Uh, that works for me. And our final question, what is it that you know about the world of venture capital investing today that you wish you knew 20 or so years ago when you were first getting started? I, I wish that I would have known, and this is going to sound a bit cynical, uh, how rigged the game is. Um, I think every system at every point is rigged. And if you can figure out, you know, that little, uh, uh, you know, mechanical Turk in the machine that's pulling the con. Rigged. Think, yeah, rigged. Now, Explain that a little bit. Every, look, in 98, 99, 2000, you know, people thought, you know, you just got to pick the winners or whatever, but the, the system was rigged. IPOs were rigged. The distribution of IPOs was rigged. Um, you know, housing market, CDOs. There's always a game being played and it's and there's a, a, a secret that the people who are making the most money basically keep. They won't acknowledge publicly until after the fact. And so I think at any point in time in some domain, it's happening. And whether it's central bankers today or whether it was the housing crisis or whether it's the soft bank stuff to, you know, today or um, that there's always some game that's being played that is totally unfair and rigged and um, and to sort of appreciate that and and look for it. Um, try, to try to figure out where is the system rigged because it always is somewhere. Quite, quite cynical and fascinating. We have been speaking with Josh. I almost called you Josh Lux. Josh Wolf. Uh <laughs> Managing partner and co-founder of Lux Capital. If you enjoyed this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch and on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of the previous 250 such conversations we've had over the prior five years. Uh, you can find that wherever finer podcasts are sold, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, etc. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank our crack staff who helps put this together each week. Carolyn O'Brien is our audio engineer today. Michael Boyle is my producer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.